fasten your seatbelt. I am taking you for the ride of your life. I'm going to show you what this car can really do. Are you ready? I am ready. Hang on. Okay. Here we go. Hold on to your butts. Forget him, kid. To infinity and beyond! It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. So you can go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask me, and my natural response could be to get offended. Well, fine, let's talk about it. Any thoughts of, of your own on this matter? But you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage, and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own idea just to impress some girls? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, all right, all right. You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. One movie each week, 30 years in the making. It is the 30-something movie podcast. I am your host, John Reed, and we are back at you for another movie from 1993 this week. This week, we are talking Philadelphia, the movie starring Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. With me, as always, I've got Patrick Canigallo. Patrick, how's it going? Hey, great, everybody. How you doing? Which maybe a new nickname for you. I, did you see what I titled the episode when we posted up the one about the Bond draft? You know, I saw it was something. I just, I'm not remembering what it was the, right the now. The episode title was Plenty Okanagalo. Plenty Okanagalo. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I felt it was appropriate. Yeah. Spe- speaking of plenty, we've also got Dennis. Dennis, how are you doing? Yo, how you doing all? Yo. How's it going? Yo, Adrian. Good. Doing good. I feel like everybody's like, like we're in, we're in the springtime now. We're in like, it's, it's, it's either like a time of new life or a time when as teachers, we look forward and go, all right, what is it? Three weeks, four weeks, how much time left? When do we get out of here? You said we're in the spring, but tell weather, tell the weather that too. Cause it's been, yeah, no, that's, that's not true. And it's Um, been brutal. Yeah. There's a today pulling back the curtain just a little bit, so so people will know today is April 25th that we're recording this on, and uh, there is a movie. Have you guys seen the movie Miss Congeniality? Yes, with Sandra Bullock. Yep. There's a scene where and William Shatner is talking with I think it's Miss Rhode Island, and says, "Describe to me your perfect date." And she goes, "Gosh, I don't know. That's a tough one. I would have to say April 25th because it's not too cold and it's not too hot. All you need is a light jacket." Yeah, and maybe that's true, but not in Illinois. Not today, no, not when it's a real feel of 35 or something out there. Yeah, today was a winter coat kind of day. Yeah, everybody's dressed. We're walking around just or driving around, everybody's just dressed for winter. Uh That's big winter coats, knit caps on, everything. I mean, it was, it was, it was not, it was chilly. I did, uh, my my son had a baseball game this weekend, and it was when it was snowing. And I, I took a video of the snow and I texted to our buddies at the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast who live down in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. Jason, Jason Colvin, who I believe played baseball when he was in school, I texted that to him. And I think his response back was, that's disgusting. <laughs> baseball should only be played between the degrees of 60 and 95. Yeah. Well, that's right. I couldn't pitch in cold weather. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, it was. It was right. the walks and hit batters when it's cold. And then if you do throw a strike and then if you're a batter and you hit the ball, it's like the sting of the bat. It's yeah. yeah. I, I, funny. I think one kid got beamed three times. So, Oh God. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. You just can't feel the ball. Your fingers are frozen. No. Yeah. All right. Well, like I said, our movie this time around is Philadelphia. So a good lighthearted topic for tonight. 
I feel like our last couple yeah. weeks, last couple weeks in a row, we've like we've got Gettysburg, nice lighthearted family film, and we've got Philadelphia this week. So the episode might be a little bit lighter on some of the jokes than we normally do because this is not necessarily a jokey kind of movie. So just just giving you a heads up for that. We do spoil the movies we talk about. So as we're talking, if we mention a movie maybe you haven't seen, then just be warned because we're going to keep talking. And if you haven't seen this one, feel free to stop this. Go watch it and then come back. We'll we'll be here. Don't worry. And then if you have not already, visit our website, 30podcast.com. There's a place where you can leave us a rating. If you do that on, on Apple Podcasts, that is probably the best way because then that helps kind of rise us up in the ranks to be seen by other people. But you can also leave us a voicemail and you can join us on Patreon by becoming a co-executive producer, supporting the show financially there that helps support the show kind of pay for help pay for our hosting costs and all that other stuff just kind of keeps everything keeps the lights on here at the show so we appreciate all of our co-executive producers that help out with that it is it is very very much appreciated and we just we thank you all for being a part of that and and so happy to put some of that bonus content out there for you for those that are joining us over there all right, so jumping on into this one, our movie, as I said, is Philadelphia. It was released on December 22nd, 1993, rated PG-13. Runtime of two hours, five minutes, directed by Jonathan Dem. He directed Silence of the Lambs and Rachel Getting Married. Writer was Ron Nicewainer. I think I'm saying that right. He did The Painted Veil and Freeheld. Producer was Edward Saxon and Jonathan Dem. Saxon did Silence of the Lambs and Adaptation. Dem, who died in 2017, did Adaptation and The Manchurian Candidate. Composer was Howard Shore, who did The Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Aviator. Cinematographer was Tak Fujimoto, who did Ferris Bueller's Day Off and The Sixth Sense. Editor was Craig McKay, who did Reds and The Silence of the Lambs. And the production company for this one was TriStar, that did Terminator 2, Evil Dead from 2013, and Hook from 91. Budget was $26 million. Box office was $206.7 million. Cinema score gives it an A, Flit. Flick Metrics gives it a 73%. Actors in this one, Tom Hanks played Andrew Beckett. He was in Forrest Gump and Castaway. Denzel Washington played Joe Miller. He was in Training Day and Fences. Jason Robards played Charles Wheeler. He was in All the President's Men and Julia. Mary Steenburgen played Belinda Conine. Or Conine, Conine. She was in Parenthood and Step Brothers. Antonio Banderas was Miguel Alvarez. He was in The Mask of Zorro and Desperado. Ron Vauder played Bob Seidemann. He was in The Science of the Lambs and Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Charles Napier, who died in 2011, played Judge Garnett. He was in Silence of the Lambs and Rambo. Robert Ridgely, who died in 97, played Walter Kenton. He was in Boogie Nights and Beverly Hills Cop 2. John Bedford Lloyd played Matt Beckett. He was in Wall Street. Joanne Woodward played Sarah Beckett. She was in The Long Hot Summer. Lisa Summerer played Lisa Miller. She was in Junior. Oba Babatunde played Jerome Green. He was in Introducing Dorothy Dandridge. Anna Devere Smith played Anthea, Anthea Burton. She was in Rachel Getting Married. Tracy Walter played the librarian. He was in Repo Man and Batman 89. And Bradley Whitford played Jamie Collins. He was in Get Out and The West Wing. So some quick trivia on this one. Tom Hanks actually won his first Academy Award for Best Actor for his portrayal of Andrew Beckett in Philadelphia. And this was the first major Hollywood film to tackle the subject of AIDS and homophobia. And I think I had read some different articles and, and heard in some different interviews about how that was, like this movie was kind of pivotal in terms of changing the 
kind of the conversation to have more open conversations about some of these issues. I don't, do you guys remember around this time too? And I'm forgetting exactly when it was. I remember as a kid because, you know, Magic Johnson was one of my favorite basketball players. And I remember around this time he did like a, he came on, on Nickelodeon and kind of like did this like talk show kind of thing for kids to kind of talk about, you know, what was going on with him and just to kind of, raise awareness about AIDS and, and stuff like that. Do you guys, do you remember about when that was? I, I don't remember. Nineties or was it still eighties? I feel like it was. I thought it was right about this time that magic Johnson kind of made the announcement that he had AIDS. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Or, or is this Nickelodeon thing specifically the yeah. one that came out after? No, I, I feel like it was pretty close, like not long after he had made the announcement. I'm, I was just I was trying to remember what year it might have been. But yeah, it was kind of around that time too. But I mean, it was like between this movie and I and I feel like somebody somebody kind of like on the, on the level of a Magic Johnson, you know, coming out and talking about this. And I mean, I remember that those were kind of the, I didn't see this movie when I was a kid, but I remember that being one of the first times that I really remember hearing anything about AIDS and, and everything that was going on. And otherwise it was just kind of what you heard in the news or, or what, what you might've overheard the adults talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually it was, it was, it was about a year before uh, this. 1992 it, was called, it looks like I see Nickelodeon special edition. Yeah. It was called a conversation, um, with, conversation magic. with magic. Yeah. 1992. Yeah. I thought nineties. That's what yeah. I said. So no, a few years later it was Tommy Morrison, one of the boxers, the guy who's in Rocky. Yeah. Yeah, I think ninety six ended his career pretty much with that. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's see a couple other things in this one. Bruce Springsteen's song "Streets of Philadelphia" was written specifically for this movie, and it won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. It also won four Grammy Awards, including Song of the Year, Best Rock Song, Best Male Rock Vocal Performance, and Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture or Television Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Dem- so probably part of the way, part of the reason that this movie was able to get made in the first place is the director had just won Academy Award for Best Director for Silence of the Lambs two years before. And I, I think the thought is, is that maybe by winning that Oscar, he actually had a little bit more, a little bit more power and clout to be able to get this movie made. Because I know he was, he was one of the ones that was very influential in, in getting us out there. Because if you read about any of the you know, it sounds like anybody involved in the production of this movie had a close friend who, you know, either was dying of AIDS or had just contracted it or something like that. I, I think both the director and, and the writer, I think both had very close friends that were affected by this. So I would imagine him winning the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs was able to help this get pushed through even more than it would have. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I mean, this is based off of a a true story. The writer was inspired to write it after meeting an attorney named Jeffrey Bowers. Jeffrey Bowers was an attorney who worked for a law firm, Baker McKenzie, in New York City. And I guess he was fired in 86, allegedly due to his declining performance caused by his AIDS diagnosis. He then filed a lawsuit against that Baker McKenzie law firm, claiming he'd been wrongfully terminated. And this in... I think the case was in either 86 or 87. Oh, it was 87 that it went to trial. This was the kind of first high-profile AIDS-related discrimination cases. He did lose the case in the trial court. He was able to appeal, but he did pass away in 87 before the appeal 
was resolved. So that is the kind of the basis for the character of Andrew Beckett in this movie. Mm-hmm. And supposedly later on, almost 10 years later, his family actually reached a settlement with the law firm, which included financial compensation and an agreement to establish an annual scholarship in his name at his alma mater, Rutgers Law School. So there was some resolution to that, but it it was nearly a decade later. Right. A couple other things in here. Tom Hanks lost about 26 pounds to play, portray the physical deterioration of his character due to AIDS. Makeup artists also use prosthetics and makeup to kind of create the appearance of the lesions on his skin. And you get that. We'll, we'll talk about the, the plot of the movie and, and different things happening in the movie, but you, you get that scene later on in the movie, the very dramatic and impactful scene of him taking his shirt off in the court and everybody being able to see just... And, and you can see through the movie just how you know he looks. You, you can tell <laughs> having lost the 26 pounds to kind of portray that declining health. I mean, it was, what's that one? It was at the machinist that uh, Christian Bale. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it's, it's like similar to that. I just want to go on the record as saying, I also read that Denzel Washington had to put on pounds okay. for his role. And supposedly Tom Hanks was on the starvation diet <laughs> and Denzel Washington would walk in eating candy bars deliberately in front of him. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, just like that's pretty. That's pretty cool, man. That's that. Or not pretty cool. That's pretty cold. Yeah, you know, add a little bit of animosity between two characters that don't particularly like each other in the beginning. Mm-hmm. They have a real world reason for not liking each other. Yeah. Some interesting, some kind of fun trivia about Tom Hanks himself for this one and for Forrest Gump. Tom Hanks is only one of two actors. The other one being Spencer Tracy to win back to back Best Actor Oscars. He did so for this one, and he will he will do so for Forrest Gump next year. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Denzel he Washington did. actually has also been nominated for an Academy Award eight times. He has won twice, Best Supporting Actor for Glory and Best Actor for Training Day. Was he nominated for this movie? No. I don't believe so. Uh-huh. No. All right. All right. Well, so we're going to get on to, I'll, I'll give you the, the synopsis of the movie. We'll play the trailer for the movie, and then we'll get on into kind of recapping the plot in our major moments, and then we'll kind of get on into kind of our opinions of the movie and, and dig a little bit deeper into it. But our synopsis for this one is, like I said, we'll, we'll share the synopsis, and then we kind of have our, our quick flyby of the, the plot of the movie itself. But this one is, in a world of fear and ignorance, One man will fight against the odds to bring justice to the forefront. Tom Hanks stars as Andrew Beckett, a brilliant lawyer on the rise, but when his life takes an unexpected turn, he's unjustly fired from his prestigious law firm. Now facing the cruel reality of a life-altering diagnosis, he must confront the people who cast him aside. Denzel Washington is Joe Miller, a hard-nosed attorney forced to reevaluate his prejudices. Together they embark on a quest to expose the truth and challenge the establishment tackling bigotry and discrimination head-on. Highline Incorporated is now represented by Wyant, Wheeler, Hellerman, Tetlow, and Brown. And more specifically, Andrew Beckett. Yes! Bravo! (laughs) I sincerely appreciate your faith in my abilities. Mr. Beckett! (laughs) How are you? What happened to your face? I have AIDS. Oh. I'm seeking representation. 
You want to sue Wyant, Wheeler, Hellerman, Tetlow, and Brown? I was diagnosed with AIDS eight months ago during a bout with pneumonia. What's that in your forehead, pal? Uh, Andy, everyone in this room is your friend. I misplaced an important complaint. That's their story. We've been talking it over, your future, that is, and we feel that because we respect you so much, we must be honest with you. Excuse me. Am I being fired? Would you accept a client if you were constantly thinking, I don't want this person to touch me. I have a case. I don't want them to even breathe on me. If you don't want it for personal reasons. Thank you, that's correct, I don't. That's very disappointing. Sir, wouldn't you be more comfortable in a research room? No. Would it make you more comfortable? Beckett, how you doing? Counselor. Did you find a lawyer? There's going to be things said at the trial that are going to be hard for you to hear. I want to know everything about his personal life. What deviant groups did he secretly belong to? I didn't raise my kids to sit in the back of the bus. Is Andrew Beckett the kind of lawyer who misplaces crucial documents? An excellent lawyer. Andrew Beckett is dying. You were impressed with Andrew Beckett's work. Andrew Beckett is angry. What powerful force has caused him to change his mind? And he wants someone to pay. TriStar Pictures presents... The law's been broken. I just want what is fair, what is right. You remember the law, don't you? A Jonathan Demme picture. So let's talk about what this case is really all about. Did you fire Andrew Beckett because he had AIDS? The general public's hatred, our loathing, our fear. In this courtroom, Mr. Miller, justice is blind to matters of sexual orientation. We don't live in this courtroom, no, do we? Tom Hanks. I love the law. Denzel Washington. Are you gay? Objection! In a story about our lives. Oh, Mom, today's a good day. Our fears. Andy brought AIDS into our offices. And our humanity. I hate this case. Philadelphia. How many lawyers you go to before you call me? Nine. Right. And you, anybody recognize the music from anywhere in particular? That was the the really dramatic scenes of the Truman Show. When he's kind of like, when he's figuring out that he's living inside the dome and he's like, I think he's, I think that's one of the scenes where he's, he's on the boat and he's trying to like fight. No, no, no. Actually, it's earlier in the movie when he first realizes that everything is, everything is fake. I think that's like when they first... You know, they, they turn on the sun and they go looking for him when he's disappeared and they start playing that music. And actually that music is from a documentary, the name of the piece, and I'm going to mispronounce this. Yeah, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But uh, so there's this like trilogy of non-narrative documentaries that were made that are kind of like the, each one kind of shows like the rise of Western technology and like how it's affected like native populations and how it's affected like the change from traditional ways of life to automation and machinery and and kind of the way we think the way we do things now modernization if you want to call it that but the music was conducted by Philip Glass for that I think for that whole trilogy of documentaries and it's a pretty famous like you you'll hear this one in and I think it's in some other trailers but it's in the Truman show and I feel like I've hear, heard it in a couple of other places but the the piece itself and the I think it's the second part of the three part trilogy um, is is called Pawakatsi. and I think I might be 
P-O-W-A-Q-Q-A-T-S-I is how it's spelled. But it's a, it's a great piece of music, and it's, it's in those documentaries. And I did look it up, those documentaries. If anybody wants to watch them, they are free on Tubi.tv. So we, we tend to find a lot of good stuff on Tubi. So you may want to go check those out. And I, I feel like, because I know I've seen, I know that I, I haven't seen it, but I know that I heard a while ago I, the name of the first documentary, the Kawanat, I'm not going to pronounce these right, Life Out of Balance is the name of the first one. And hmm. as soon as I saw that name pop up, I'm like, I've seen that before. How have I seen that before? And it's, I feel like it was like Francis Ford Coppola maybe helped get it produced and made. He didn't make it. He didn't direct it, but I think he kind of helped it. But for some reason, I remember seeing that name somewhere in terms of like influential documentaries. And I'm like, okay, that's a really long name. I've never heard of this before. I have no clue what this is. And now just looking up kind of the, the, the music in the trailer for this one, I was like, oh, I've seen that before. So like, at some point I may have to jump over to Tubi and just check those out. But anyway, that's the trailer music. We didn't come here to talk all about the trailer music. For this one, I'm going to do a quick flyby of the major moments of the movie. The movie starts out. We get introduced to Andrew Beckett. He is the protagonist of our movie, played by Tom Hanks. He is a successful attorney at a prestigious Philadelphia law firm. And he is he's promoted pretty early on in the movie, given a lot of responsibility at this law firm. You know, very, very up and coming. He's doing very well. And the movie takes a turn when Andrew discovers a, a, lesion, a lesion on his forehead. Actually, one of his coworkers notices it first, a symptom of his progressing AIDS, and he tries to hide it with makeup and, and, you know, and all that. Then there's the scene where he is fired. They Ostensibly, they say it's because he misplaced a file, but as is kind of... As we go through the, the court case later on, we get the sense that it wasn't necessarily him that misplaced it, that it was done on purpose to try to get rid of him uh, due to his illness and his sexual orientation once his firm's partners kind of figure that part out. Then he goes about seeking legal representation. I think he says he goes to see, try, tries to find like nine different lawyers before he gets to Joe, and Joe is initially reluctant and refuses, Joe being played by Denzel Washington. He's a kind of personal injury lawyer. He refuses to take the case initially because, basically because of his homophobic prejudices, and that's why he doesn't want to take the case. Joe has a change of heart, kind of after witnessing some discrimination against Andrew firsthand at a library. Joe changes his mind and then agrees to represent him. Then we get into the meat of the movie, the courtroom battles, and then in the midst of the courtroom battles, we also get Joe is getting to know Andrew a little bit better. One of the most impactful scenes of the entire movie is the opera scene where they're trying to work through part of his deposition, and that is where he's trying to get Andrew to answer some of the questions to practice for it, and Andrew won't answer the questions, but he's explaining you know, how much he loves opera, and specifically this one performance, Maria Callas performing, I think it's called La Mama Morta, and that is kind of, he's using that as like a metaphor for his own struggle, his own struggle with the disease, with what it's doing to his family, what it's doing to him, um, and all of that. And then as the trial progresses, we see Andrew's health getting worse, making it very difficult for him to participate in the case and be there physically. And then we finally, we come to the end of the movie and we have the verdict and ultimately Andrew's death. The jury finds in favor of Andrew, awarding him significant damages. However, shortly after the trial, Andrew succumbs to his illness, surrounded by his family, his partner, and Joe. So 
That is the quick flyby of the movie, the major moments. Do you feel like there's anything I missed or that pretty well cover it? I got most of it. All right. I think so. All right. As long as you think so, that's all that matters. Right. right. All right. All right. Let's think a little deeper about this one. And now, deep thoughts. I have an opinion on this matter. Don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? I like it a lot. Wow. It's, It's very deep. Thank you. All right. So for this one, let me just start off with when was the first time you saw this movie? And overall, did you did you enjoy this movie? I guess I'll go first. I saw it. I can't guarantee what time, but relatively soon after the release. I did not see it in a theater. It was a DVD or VHS rental at the time. I don't even remember where we were at. Probably VHS, right? Yeah, probably at this point. Yeah. DVDs weren't until, yeah, until were DVDs, like 95, 96 maybe. Yeah, so I would say VHS rental, family at home. It also could have been maybe if we were subscribed to HBO or something like that, but I'm pretty sure. VHS uh, rental, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, and what was the other question? Were you asking if you liked it? Yeah. What was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's a a compelling film. It's Yeah, it makes you think about something that I grew up in in that time period of the 80s when this stuff was kind of first bubbling over, and and it's kind of interesting that it did take – Hollywood, 10 years or so, probably past the, the the initial point of this, which before something like this, before a movie about... I, I believe there were some other movies that were touched upon or some TV shows or something here and there, but nothing major. This was the first major film, to, you know, dealing with the issue of AIDS and, and, and the whole, whole thing, so. Yeah, what about you, Pat? Yeah, I'm the opposite end. I had heard of this movie, but I had never watched it until now. So this is the first time I've seen it. And I mean, I very much enjoyed it and a lot to, a lot to process and unpack from, you know, what the content's about, but from the, like the mechanics of the movie, like looking at Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks, it was just like a tour de force of Hollywood actors that, you know, made it into this movie. And it, so it was, it was very much enjoyed. Yeah. For me, I, I actually forgot that I had seen this movie cause I'm sitting here and I'm going, yeah, how have I not seen this one before? But I just, I just don't remember. I just don't remember watching this movie. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, no, I vividly remember that scene. Nope. I vividly remember that scene. Like the scene where he's, you know, some of the, like in the library, the scene in the library, where, you know, the character is asking, sir, wouldn't you be more comfortable? And No, would you be more comfortable? You know, that scene, the scene where Joe goes home for the first time and he's talking with his wife and using some, using some language that hopefully would not get used as much today. But he's just, he's being honest about his feelings towards, you know, homosexuals and, and anybody who may have AIDS or anything like that. And I vividly remember that scene, especially as it gets to the end. And he's asking his wife, well, how many people do you know? She's like, I know tons of people. Like my, this aunt and, and, you know, this person and this person and the guy that's working on our kitchen and the, you know, and then as the movie went on, like there were several other scenes I was like, I, you know what? No, I've actually seen this whole movie and I actually remember it really well now that I'm watching it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I will say, as we've said with so many other movies, I will say, did I enjoy this movie? Yes, I did enjoy this movie. A tough movie to enjoy as, as we kind of always say with movies like this, it's like, 
I enjoyed watching it for what the movie does uh, and mm-hmm. the impact that it has and the performances and all of that. You know, it's not one of those that, that you come away feeling great and, and happy-go-lucky and, and stuff like that, but it, it is a, it's a great movie. Yeah, and I think, mm-hmm. like, when Pat said that, and I, I know Pat, that was not Pat's no, yeah, yeah. tone of what it was. It means he enjoyed the film. It was a good film. Right. Right. Yeah. Probably the better thing. Yeah. yeah. And and the same thing. Like when he, when you first said that, I was like, oh, I don't know if it's enjoyable, but yeah. in fact, it's probably quite the opposite in some ways. It's it's a certain bit disturbing. Oh yeah. I remember when I was talking about other films, I was I knew that the other one that had an impact on me too around that time was it was a made for TV. It was Tackle Days. It was the Ryan White story. So that was about the hemophiliac kid who ended up having AIDS. And and it's interesting because that one was I just thinking back again. Um. 93 i'm 21 22 you know i'm at that like going through this the, the aids thing throughout the high school and college years for a lot of people it's it's obviously a time of i i, I don't know what better word exploration whatever things like that for people with you're dating now and everything else and it's and that was in the back of everybody's mind i, I do remember that being an impact of like this and 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 the, and, and i think it's interesting that the Denzel, the the sorry not the Denzel, the, the story with Ryan White was made first because I think that the masses could sympathize more with a hemophiliac boy who contracted this and we could feel for that. And it took a few more years later for it to be somebody who was a homosexual having AIDS where people could maybe have sympathy. You know, it seemed like there is that there was that probably vibe back there that I that back then that I I think I could obviously recognized just in, in, in society and in people and, well, and things, I like wanna, that things weren't as accepting as they would be today. Yeah. I, and you know, it's funny because I, I want to say, and I remember kind of feeling this too, and, and they describe it. I don't think they describe it in the movie, but they describe it, you know, I was reading some of the trivia. It was, well, there, there was the character, the one that contracted AIDS because of the blood transfusion was a sympathetic person Yeah, because he had contracted AIDS through no fault of his own is what it was seen as right where the other one was, was here's a moral, a moral judgment against somebody, how they contracted it. Right. Yeah, right. It was, and so, yeah. it was, it was, was an accident. It. it was an accident, not a behavior. Yes. Right. And so they somehow, and, and it's funny because, and that's, I thought the writing was incredible is when the person was the, the woman from the firm that was suffering just looked and said, I don't see, I don't look at any of that. I just see someone else that's suffering from the same disease that I am, you know, I mean, which I thought was powerful, but yeah, you're right, Dennis. And that was, I remember that too, growing up, like that there was just, there was that stigma around. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what really opened things up too, just in, in the discussions of like sexually transmitted diseases and such. And, and especially like when Magic Johnson announced that he had AIDS and that suddenly it was, it was something that was not just spreading through people of the gay community, right? Now, now and, and that's when it was kind of started, started to be treated like a very dangerous sexually transmitted disease. And uh, as opposed to one that would only sp- spread in the, in the gay community. So I, yeah, everything you're saying, I, I remember hearing that and kind of picking up on that, and I thought the movie really shows that in a in a very clear, uh, brings it into sharp relief, as you would say, the feelings at the time. 
So what are your thoughts on the movie? I'm going to take the title of the movie here for a second. The movie went through several different title options. One, I think, was Just Cause or Probable Cause. One was, one title was People Like Us. They had a couple of different titles, but then they ultimately settled on Philadelphia. And, of course, it takes place in Philadelphia. But why do you think they would have ultimately settled on that? Like, how does that, I don't know, how does the idea of, what, is, what does the city of Philadelphia have to do with, why, why ultimately choose that name for this movie, do you think? I, there, there's the obvious relationship between Denzel and, and Tom Hanks and, and naming it after the city of brotherly love and them having a coming to a better understanding of each other and kind of a, an appreciation than ultimately a, a love and care for each other by the end. I think especially when you get to the end of the movie and you have the scene of, you know, Joe putting the oxygen mask on Joe, who wouldn't even get anywhere near Tom Hanks's character when he when he stepped away from him when he first told him he had AIDS to the point where he's literally giving him, as he, t- he talks about that, I think, in the opera scene, in the opera talking about, like, the breath of life. And then literally at the end of the movie, he's giving him the breath of life by resting this mask back on his face so he can continue to breathe. So there's the city of brotherly love part of it, but why why name this Philadelphia? I thought it was always just because of the, the brother, brother of love, brother, brotherly love or brother in love. And- okay. And, and I, I, I wasn't sure what the gay population or community was like in Philadelphia back then. I always wonder if that was. I had not been to Philadelphia. I knew San Francisco obviously had that type of connection, like a very heavy gay community in there. I, I wasn't sure about Philadelphia if it did. But I just took it. I just figured it was like the whole idea of brotherly love. And, and you could look at it in a couple different ways and just that idea of somebody's neighbor and who is my brother. And that, I was kind of always thinking it somehow was centered around that thought. But yeah. that part of it could also be Philadelphia being there's so much history related to America and democracy and law and all of that and kind of think having it placed in a city with the kind of historical significance that and a representation of equality and freedom and and all of those things kind of contrasting it with the discrimination the prejudice that are getting faced by all the all the people in the movie for whom you know Andrew is is kind of a proxy for as well that that's kind of a an interesting interesting mirror to hold up to like hey we've got this this city that is known for its history of you know our nation's history of of trying to fight for equality and for freedom and here's yet another battleground in the courtrooms of trying to get that same equality and freedom for a marginalized group of people so i i thought that could be one way that one reason for using the the Philadelphia title for that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'd be curious to see why they named it Philadelphia, unless they're just trying to just say, wait, I don't know. I don't know if my thought is going to make much, is going to make much sense, but I, it's almost like they're just trying to tell a story about life. Right. And, and tell a story about, there's a group of, at the time, there's a group of people that are being marginalized and yeah. so forth. And in the name at Philadelphia, it doesn't have some big exotic, long revealing title to the film. They just call it Philadelphia. 
yeah. you know, the city that like people live in, it, it could have been called Chicago if it was set in Chicago, if it could have been, you know, it's just, they're just trying to make it real. Like, Hey, here's a slice of what would happen in, it could be any city around the world. So they just call it, they call it Philadelphia. They just call it kind of where the movie set, just trying to make it seem like, Hey, this is a real story that just can kind of happen to someone living next door to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I still I, think, I was I, I guess maybe I'm a little bit more swayed to the whole brother love thing because of right. the, the fact that, uh, in my opinion, I think might be a better song than Bruce's. Bruce's a good song, but I think the Neil Young song even seems to be a little more powerful. And I remember the soundtrack. Peter Gabriel had one on there called Love Town on there as well. Mm-hmm. A song called, called Love Town, but those are kind of the three major artists. But the Neil Young song, I just remember the lyrics discussing the brotherly love, and and it was written from what I remember, and I could I was going to try and look this up, but lyrically, it's kind of like like almost like Beckett talking. It's from his perspective, and, and kind of like if you look at the lyrics of the actual song called Philadelphia. I remember it was very centered into brotherhood. Yeah. Was there, so in this movie, was there a scene that kind of hit you pretty hard as you were watching this? Was there one in particular, there's the opera scene, there's the scene in the library, there's, there's all kinds of different scenes. Was there one in particular that when you were watching this movie, like all of a sudden you're like, man, this is, like, this is a pretty hard-hitting scene. I think I got to go to the death scene always. I don't know, like, where he's going to die, and he's everybody's coming to the hospital. And I think the way they – remember that you're familiar with a lot of times during this movie, you had people looking straight at the camera. Yeah. Which isn't typically done, but right. they're literally delivering their lines straight into the camera, whether it's the Mary Steenburgen in the court, whether it's Denzel. It happens – and then I think in the end, it's also his – what's his name? The, 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 his, 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 his basically his, his, his boyfriend. I can't, why am I drawing a blank on his name? The famous actor. Um, Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas. And I think like just that I, I like the way they filmed Denzel trying to walk and not see him. They don't reveal him right away. And you're here, he's hearing people and people are like, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. And it's kind of that, I, I don't know why that scene always just hits me in the sense of like, he knows he's approaching a dying man and he's going to see him and everybody's talking about to see you tomorrow see tomorrow and everybody knows darn well that you're probably not going to see him and no one's really completely and and it's like even beckett knows that they're just saying that and the one guy can't even say anything i think it, it breaks down and and everybody's see you tomorrow and it was just like just the vibe of that whole scene of like how awkward that moment is for people and if you've ever been in that that environment with somebody before with a with a family member or a loved one a friend who's in the hospital it's it's a very, I think they, in a weird way, kind of captured that vibe as he walked into that. Like, he didn't want to kind of go, but he had to go. But at the same time, he's glad he went. But at the same, it's just a weird, it's a weird, and what's the name's like, signal him over. And he's like almost cautious to come over. Not because of the AIDS, because of the awkwardness. And I think you have to pick up on that. He wasn't afraid to go over there because of AIDS. He was afraid to go over there because it's just an awkward thing to do is to look at a dying person and talk to them like they're not dying. Right. You know, so I think that that was for me a powerful scene. Yeah, there are other ones that are the opera part. Like those, those are all, and I think you guys would probably discuss about. But for me personally, I always remember just that the death scene. Sort of, it was like he's ready to go. You know, and the tears in people's eyes, kind of welling, and other well, people. And that, doesn't that whole scene culminate with him talking to you know his partner? Yeah, saying I'm ready. 
He says I'm ready. Yeah, it's time. Yeah. yeah. You know. And I think Banderas, from what I remember, I think he's looking right in. No, yeah, he's looking right into the camera. So at the end of that, you're looking at Banderas, look at you as if you're Beckett. Mm-hmm. Looking right into your eyes and, and, you know, kind of tearing up a little himself and saying, like, kind of, okay, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I think the music starts playing at the time, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, I think the, you know, I think the, the library scene in particular was pretty, a pretty tough scene to watch. You know, he's, cause you just see the, the, the librarian guy just kind of standing and you see him like sigh, like you can't quite tell, does he really, does he really want to try to tell him to go sit somewhere else? You know, is he really discriminating against him as much as he is, is he torn trying to ask this guy to move somewhere and I, but just that whole scene is just so uncomfortable but I think just hits it in, and that's the turning point for Joe as a character is when he actually sees that happen it turns from a look I don't have to like this guy but this is not how this is not how people are supposed to be treated so this is and initially that's his kind of turning point is it's about the law it's not about the person and then I think as the movie goes on, then it becomes more about the person and why does this person deserve, you know, all people deserve justice. But as he starts to get to know Andrew a little bit better, it kind of wears away at some of his prejudices. So, so I think for me, probably one of the library scene is probably one of the strongest. Yeah, it is. That's a good scene. Yeah. You see him like kind of peeking behind the books and then, yeah. Yeah. I'm just... Trying to think, how old were you guys during this phase of the? Let's see, let you would have been. I'm trying to think how less how many years. Uh, when this been. movie came out, I had just turned 13. Okay, all right. Were you aware of the whole AIDS thing at that point, really, or no? Were you kind of I, oblivious to it? No, I, I was because Magic Johnson was one of my favorite basketball players. That's a 13, but like seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm talking like when you're grown up, oh, because that was younger. really the heart of it. Where I clearly remember in the '80s being your age, so I guess it's about the difference. Where I remember there's this there's this new disease that's killing people, and in, in, in the way you go and Carposi was the Carposi sarcoma pictures of, of people with it, and and I and I I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is I want to avoid the so it's a it's a delicate balance. I wouldn't say a defense of people, but an understanding of people back then, but that was not uncommon. That librarian was not like an evil right. person. Right. And people didn't know what you were dealing with. We didn't know how you can catch it. Right. Honestly, you could, you could flash forward to some of the things that happened during our current pandemic, you know, where people were like treating other people pretty bad because you didn't know, you didn't know if something could be spread this way or that you didn't know how, if it could be from touching, you didn't know if it could be from breathing. They didn't know how things could be spread back then. I remember the confusion, the scariness of that as a, as a kid, like I was thinking, I'm 10 years old, man, can I get this? You know, reading the newspaper and, 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 and the, the TV things and seeing people with the different forms of cancer that you get from it. And, and yeah, I mean, it, so, so I, I think the film did a decent job of that. Now, obviously, you got the the, the lawyers, the, the very elite, rich lawyers and stuff and, and that. And it's it's born out of fear. 
fear of the unknown, and that can lead us to discriminate and treat people differently. And I think that's as true today, not just like I said in that. I think that happened with a lot of things, and I think we hopefully have learned. I don't know if we've learned lessons from it all, but you know, you saw people do that to other people. There's people like like lost their livelihoods, who got let go, who got fired. You can make arguments about why and what and, and other reasons, but I'm just saying like the fear of something that we don't know about can make people treat other people in inappropriately. And, you know, that, that, that librarian was just like, didn't know how to really approach it himself almost. It was just right. kind of like, and I think he had a great response. Would it make you more comfortable? Cause that is the answer. Right. The answer is it would make him more comfortable. He's uncomfortable and not because he's gay. He doesn't know whether he's gay or not, but he probably can assume it's clearly because I don't know how, you, if I'm going to get, I would feel safer if you're over there. Right. And that's true. And that, that was the true of a lot of people. Like a lot of people didn't want to touch. I think princess Diana like crossed a big bridge with her treatment of somebody with AIDS. I remember that being a big thing where she either touched somebody or did something or kiss. I, it was something, and it was just a, a groundbreaking thing of like, wow, whoa, 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 you took that risk. You know, it was almost like a mother Teresa with the lepers type of thing. Yeah. And that was rare, you know? So I think the time period is, there was a lot of unknowns and a lot of fear and a lot of good people who were probably doing things that in the end result were making people who were struggling feel less than they should have. And that's tragic and sad all the way around, I guess would be my point. Yeah. Now to answer your earlier question, I think the earliest I would have known about anything related to, to, to AIDS and HIV would have been Freddie Mercury dying like that. My dad was a big fan of Queens music and, and so, I mean, that I remember hearing about that. I remember hearing how he died and that that I as far as I can think back, that would have been one of the first times I could remember hearing about it. I'm sure that I did before then. I'm, I'm sure people were talking about it in school and stuff like that. But I the first kind of high profile, you know, death that I remember was his and then Magic Johnson, obviously, announcing that he had contracted AIDS, that he had contracted HIV and yeah, so that probably would have been the earliest that I can even I could remember hearing anything. Yeah, I mean, I I was I would have said ten or eleven if I were to guess, but I just looked it up and it was eighty one is when it broke. Yeah, which yeah. puts me right at about ten or eleven years old, right there, and I I kind of remember that, and I and I think I was probably junior high, and it was Rock Hudson, so that was the first big okay. celebrity that was all in the tabloids. That was like, and that was too. weird because it was this big leading man, big strong man. You know, and then the rumors came out about, you know, that he hit a secret gay life and, you know, and you say, and I read about the things and you saw the pictures and he was so gaunt and he was so skinny and he was, the National Enquirer would plaster everything back then. So if they found somebody dying of something, they just plastered pictures all over the place back then, you know, like the kind of trash type of, you know, exploitive newspaper that it was or magazine. And I remember those are haunting. Those are haunting and scary. It scared the crap out of me as a kid. Because here I was just about to approach the whole dating thing. And Rock Hudson, the leading man of Hollywood, dies of AIDS. And then, you, like you said, you had Magic Johnson, Freddie Mercury. And, and, you know, and then it's like, oh, well, those are, well, he was, did they get it from this or did they get it from that? And when Magic Johnson got it, it made you even more afraid because you're like, well, wait, was he gay or was he not gay? Like that was going to make it in your mind. You needed to wrap your, your, your brain around something like, how do I avoid this? Yeah. You know, and if you, it was a, a guy who was a straight man got it. It's like, well, geez, none of us are really safe, are we? Yeah. Before there was a false sense of security. Like, hey, if I'm not gay, I'm okay, you know? And then as long as I stay away from them people, that was kind of the, the mentality. And then 
And then when Magic Johnson got it, it kind of exploded that. Now, you also knew he was very promiscuous and, and living the life of an NBA player and stuff of, of, of you know, like kind of like the rock star thing. But yeah, it just, it, it impacted, it impacted, uh, you know, life for a lot of people, a lot of friends back then of like just even dating and there was a, a fear to it all. So talk for a second about Tom Hanks, because it's an interesting choice to have Tom Hanks play this role because up to this point, I'm looking at his IMDb page and up to this point, he's done Dragnet, Big, The Burbs, Turner and Hooch, Joe versus the Volcano, A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle. So it's all been pretty much comedies or romantic comedies leading up to this point. And then I, I would argue of his filmography on here that boom, then all of a sudden you hit Philadelphia in 1993. So I would imagine making this movie a bit of a risk throwing Tom Hanks in here because, you know, this is the this is the splash and bachelor party guy and yet you're going to have him be the lead actor in this pretty serious story. So, I don't know, what what do you guys think about that? I mean, we've we've had decades now of seeing Tom Hanks in all kinds of other roles, but you know, does this does this feel like a risk, or do you think that there were other things in what he did up to this point that, if you were a producer, you would have said, "Oh yeah, totally, let's do Tom Hanks here." For me, it's hard to look back and not look at Tom Hanks as the Tom Hanks, yeah. right? That that we know that's played all these incredible roles. So it's hard to go back and know him as, oh, you know, man, he was big and burbs and all. It's it's hard to do that just because you've had Tom Hanks for this long doing these incredible, incredible things. And he is just incredible in this movie. So for me, it doesn't seem that risky because he's just so amazing at it. Yeah. Right. And and like I said, I've got 30 plus years of Tom Hanks greatness. So yeah, I mean, I could imagine that would be a little, surprising or questioning when all of a sudden he pops up as the leading actor in the in this film to probably raise some eyebrows but see i've had, i can't unsee what i've seen and i've just seen his his talent on full display especially in this movie so i can't go back and say it seems real risky it you watch what he does in the movie and it just seems like a sure thing well, it almost makes me think, kind of, Dennis, what you said about being worried about AIDS at first because it was actors that that may have been gay or or whatever, and then all of a sudden Magic Johnson was, well, wait a minute, but, but then that means that can get anybody. So I'm wondering if strategically they were thinking, people love Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is, Tom Hanks is America. Tom Hanks is the everyman. So what if we make a movie in which the most relatable guy in Hollywood, you know, plays mm-hmm. the gay character that gets fired from his job because he is dying of AIDS now. And, and you know, we, we show the American movie-going audience, this could be anybody. Like, this could be... Mm-hmm. When, when I think of one of, their, one of their probable titles that they almost went with was People Like Us, like it kind of makes me think of that part of it is like trying to find a actor, a character that is relatable because you've seen him, you've loved him and other things. And now look at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think from, I think that probably angle 
probably was in the thought process as well. And I just think as far as uh, you know, acting chops, I think even though some of those other roles were silly, I think they're probably big. And I would say Sleepless in Seattle, like it showed that he can be, there's elements of some seriousness in there and there's some drama and there's feeling for you. And he can just absorb a role and you can make him believe he's someone else. You know, you believed he was a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that just showed that some credit to the fact that they believed he was truly an actor who could take on a difficult role like this, make you feel something for him, which he did. And like you said, those other factors may have played a part as well, like the the all American, like the all American actor at that point who could draw in people's sympathies, and and it wasn't some unknown random person who you might still feel like, oh well, we don't know about this guy. Yeah, so, well, yeah, I think that's probably it. And and don't forget that one episode he did of Tales from the Crypt. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yep, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a Washington's an interesting choice too. So I want to bring that up. Yeah. I, I was blown away by Denzel Washington and what he did. And then I was blown away by Tom Hanks. And I just thought the two of them, it was like a tour de force. I, I just, I, I just, I find Denzel Washington so amazing to watch on screen. And I feel the same thing about Tom Hanks. I'm not saying, you know, like in comparison to each other, but yeah, I just, I just found him so, especially in those courtroom scenes, he just, he, he was like acting big. Like he just like owned the camera. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, and in many of those scenes he was in the story, he was owning the other characters, but he was, he just, oh my goodness, just the way he would do it. And then I thought he was so good in just carrying that same persona home when he, when he was talking to his wife. And he's like, that's okay. That's just who I am. I don't like it. This makes me nervous. I don't do this. I don't do it. Oh, okay. Well, you say that, you know, your sister's this or your aunt's this or whatever. Well, not me. And and he just said, well, fine. I'm just going to just, he, he just lived that persona so much. And then it was almost like, I was thinking like almost the Tom Hanks character is almost like a side character at this point, because it's almost all about Denzel Washington. And it, 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 do you get what I'm saying? Like, it, like, just then you would have the two of them next to each other and interacting. I, I really, boy, I, I just can't imagine any other casting, right? I'm, I'm sure the list of who they were going to get to play these characters, I'm sure they had plenty of options and all that, but I was, I was just really taken by both of their performances. Well, I think, I think that you have to look at it from also this perspective of a message of the movie or what's the point of the movie or what are they trying to say with the movie? And Tom Hanks is the vehicle, obviously, to get care, the character of Denzel Washington's character to uh, to change, to metamorph, which is ultimately probably what the goal is. They want us to open our eyes and change, too. Society as mm-hmm. a whole, society as a general, look at your prejudices, look at your fears, look at the things that you bring to the table and see it change in this guy who you, this Denzel Washington changing. You know, I think the scene in the store, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. I knew many people that would react that way. In fact, I will tell you, I probably would have reacted that way in certain cases where I would have been like, almost like I wouldn't have ever like to grab the guy and like, oh, but, but I would have been like, I, I would have been disturbed by that. You know, where he's like, you think I'm gay? And then he calls him the name and then he like grabs by the thing. And the guy's like, do you think I am? Do I look like I am? And when it was just kind of that, that confrontation there where, you know, probably a lot of people were felt that and, 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 and experience that type of situation. You know, I didn't know anybody and probably 
I would say there were a couple kids in like high school that we suspected, but nobody was ever out at that point. And it wasn't until probably about four or five years later where I worked for somebody like the person who was right above me in my first teaching position was gay. That was the first actual gay person I knew ever, who I ever knew, you know? And I remember it was like, it was interesting. It was, again, it's a different level. It's a different experience, you know, when you know somebody. They're not a, a thing on TV or a character character in a movie or that guy. It's literally somebody in it, and they have thoughts and feelings. And when it's, a, I think we sometimes see people as the stereotype. It's a little bit easy to do sometimes. Well, and I think sometimes, at least maybe initially, you society's reaction would have been like, "Well, yeah, this is." This is always going to be people like in the entertainment industry or it's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. here's, here's where most of those type of people hang out. But I think the other thing that this movie does really well is you see so many scenes of he's with his family. He's at a, at a party. He's a mm-hmm. lawyer in a law firm. It's, this could be anybody. Like it's, it's not just, it's not like actors or performers or this this maybe group of society that I don't tend to know too many actors or performers as I do doctors and lawyers and teachers and uh, things like that. And maybe that's, for lack of a better term, and I'm using my quote fingers here, more acceptable to have to professions like doctor, lawyer, teacher, those kind of things. And I think to have it be a story where you're trying to educate people on HIV and AIDS, you're trying to get people to empathize with the characters and with what they're going through. I think that makes a huge difference to set it in such a way so that this is the job your character was employed in because that that audience that might be more resistant to it, they may not go see a story like this if he's not playing a a more prestigious he's playing or a more stereotypical kind of flamboyant right. type of character yes you might turn off people to go see that that's absolutely right Right. i think and what they do well in this film is they don't in my opinion they don't get you to say because i know certain people may have moral religious disagreements with certain lifestyles and things like that and i think they know they recognize that and they're not asking people to necessarily like oh you need to change that right now but you saw this person as a human i think the opera scene is huge in that i think denzel is where he really first starts to kind of see him as a human being not as quote unquote i'm doing my quotes a gay guy so it wasn't about hey except gay people except it was more about recognize that everyone is a person and a human being whether whatever their sexual identity is and that there are feelings and that there are they're, they're like you said, they're just like anyone else in so many different respects. They're not different in that way where they have families and they have people and they have jobs and dreams and goals. And he wants to live just like everyone else does. And he's not going to. And I think that human aspect is what you connect on, not necessarily a sexual identity or anything like that. It was, I think they do a nice job of letting Denzel, they almost kind of bond with the fact that he knows forms of discrimination. He sees him with discrimination. He sees him as a human being versus again, Hey, everybody, you need to accept this gay lifestyle. It wasn't about that. It was about, you need to treat people with dignity and respect no matter what their lifestyle is, you know? Yeah. And that's why I think it worked. 
And that's why I think the film worked. And again, is it the best film in the world? No. Is it how many years late? Probably than it should have been. But at the same time, it was when it was because it was. And because other people weren't ready for that film and maybe Holly wasn't, wasn't ready for that film. I don't know. You know, but when you think about 93 from 81, that's, that's 12 years. That's yeah. 12 years before a film was really made with a popular actor and, and, and about a story that can contain characters that were dealing with what they were dealing with both the you know, gay aspect and the, the AIDS aspect. So, Yeah, I think to your point that Joe has the line when he's he kind of getting into it with that one guy at the bar, and it's, yeah. it's not, again, not trying to change the movie, I think, at least towards in, in the beginning, the first half maybe, or the first two-thirds maybe, not trying to change anybody's minds about the people, but he's got that line. He's like, he's like, I forget what the guy's name is, but he's like, those people make me sick. But a law has been broken. The law. Do you remember the law? And he, that's his whole thing. Mm-hmm. Is it's like I, I could really care less about the people, but I'm a lawyer. That's what we deal with. A law has been broken. That's what I'm going to fight. And then I think in that last half or third of the movie, then it really kicks into okay. So we've got you hooked because people are being discriminated against. Discrimination wrong. At, at all points, doesn't really matter who the person is, what their background is, and then I think it really kind of cranks up the the empathy on the back half of the movie when you really start to see Andrew's character just deteriorate, just get skinnier and more gaunt as the movie goes on. And I think the movie does a really good job of that. Like there are a few times here or there where I think it does a good job of informing, especially having coming out uh, coming out in 1993, informing people about. You know, here's how here's how you do and don't contract this virus, you know, and trying to, to give a little bit more information. There are a couple times here or there where it, it starts to just edge a little close to like the after school special kind of stuff. The, the kind of like a little preachy, a little PSA kind of sounding. But I think it it at least it rides that line carefully. I, d- I don't think it tends to go too far with that, but there were a few moments there that I was like, okay, I'm, I, any minute now I'm going to see the more. Da-da-da. Yeah, it did have, yeah, it, yeah. it teetered on that occasion. Yep. Yeah, but not, not so far as it took me out of the movie. Not to ruin it though, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else about the, before we get into three questions, if there's anything else about the movie you guys want to talk about, explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old. <laughs> Six-year-old. Or a six-year-old. The six year old, at least the line in the or, jury, or a two year old. Now, I think the soundtrack was was overall powerful. Again, I favor yeah. Neil Young song over Springsteen's. But all good, all three of those songs, the Peter Gabriel ones are all good too. But yeah, it's a thought provoking. Again, going back to again, it's not an enjoyable film. It's a, it's 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 a challenging film. Mm-hmm. You know, for for a lot of people, especially people who held certain beliefs or lack certain experiences. Like I said, I had no contact with anybody. There was no kind. There just wasn't when we went to parochial school and Catholic school, and it was like you didn't know anything about anything. It seemed like, and all of a sudden, you're seeing in these characters, and you're you're thinking and you're feeling something that's empathetic and sympathetic for someone, and you're a little bit afraid of things too. It's like there. I just remember being that time period of being a kid growing up, and you're just it, it was like exposing you to a world that you had never met in person, right. Yeah. And and I think that can be some of the great things of film. And that's what film can do is take you on that trip that where you haven't been. And in this case, it was a very scary social climate and situation for a teenager 
growing up in that time period with AIDS, blowing up and not knowing what it is, and then seeing faces to these things and, and, and seeing people, people's stories. It was, it's weird. It's a weird time period. I remember, do you remember PBS had Image Union? Do you ever remember that, John? No, doesn't sound there was, a, there was a PBS series that would air on the weekends. It was called Image Union. And Image Union would do independent films and things like that. They would be little short things and short, short kind of short stories or short, you know, just kind of creative work and art and stuff. And there was the old song by this Tainted Love. That song? Remember that one? Yeah, it was like yeah, a faster yeah. pace. Yeah. Somebody had one and it had to do, I remember my dad was, he was just on, on TV or whatever because he used to show it and different things would pop on. This one came on and they played that song really slow. It was like a, a remake of it. It was super slow and it had to do something with AIDS, you know, and I remember just like it made me just, it was, it was, it was, it was, I, I don't know if I want to say disturbed, but like just kind of like, Fearful of things, you know, it was, and whenever I hear that song, I still think of that to this day. So I'm saying the power of film, like to kind of impact you in a certain way or make you, I would say that didn't answer any questions for me. It just made me more fearful of a world I knew nothing about, you know, as a kid. So just this one kind of helped, I think in some ways it, it did challenge, but it also did give you some sort of peace to it as well, too. And a little bit of comfort, you know. So I'm wondering, I, I was looking this up real quick. I, I don't remember this, but it looks like in season 10 of this show, which would have been 87 to 88, number episode number nine of season 10 of the show was the topics were AIDS, question and answers, and a segment on cocaine. So that would have, it says it came out in July of 1987. So I wonder if that was the episode. Are you talking about Image Union? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That would probably make sense. It would probably be about that. You said 87? 87, yeah. Um, 15, 16, yeah. That's yeah. about right, yeah. And looks, it's, like, looks like they did like a question and answer segment on AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I'm hearing the conversation and, and, and thinking back too, and I, I think what makes this troubling or this time period and scary and all of that is that we're not only dealing with a a public health crisis, a devastating disease, but it's also bringing into the forefront, you know, now we'd call it the LGBTQ plus community, but the, the, you know, it it brings to the forefront the, the gay community, whereas before it was always the, what's the, wait, in the closet, right? It's hidden. And that's kind of the thing is that this grappling with how to handle this disease forced that out to where, you know, it forced it out into the public consciousness. You know what I'm saying? Dealing with people at the gate, well, dealing with, but coming to grips with that there were people in the world who were part of the gay community. And the way it was looked back 30 years ago I mean, you saw it played, that was like the topic of jokes, of ridicule, of scorn, right. as opposed to, hey, you live your life and I live mine. It was, it had to be hidden. It had to be covered up because of all the, the stigma out there. So I think that's where we're kind of dealing with, we're seeing two different things and it's almost like the perfect storm, right? Because you have this, this, this public health 
crisis that was scary and we don't know how it spreads and how do we handle it and all that. But then in the same token, because a lot of it seemed to be going through a group of people that were forced to live in the shadows, that's where all the, a lot of that confusion and how do we handle this? And that's where that came from. And we didn't want to look at people like that as people. Right. Right. And I think that's, that's put out in this movie. I mean, like when he was sitting there in the sauna and all the jokes that were happening, right. You know, like you're sitting there and, and uh, I mean, how many times do we hear it now? You know, you got to be so careful of, of what jokes you say because you don't know who might be listening. And that's, that's a good, that's a good way to, that's a good way to live. Right. right. I mean, it's, it's like, you do want to be cautious that what are you saying? Your words can have an effect on the person next to you. But I mean, just the idea of thinking that you're gay was something of a lot of offense. I mean, we were watching the movie. What was it? We were watching one of the Naked Gun movies. Yeah, I think the sequel to Naked Gun. And I remember there was a whole like gag that one of the characters, not one of the main characters, but of that movie, but one of the side characters was potentially gay. And that was the whole, that was the whole joke. That was the whole gag. And I remember thinking now 30 years on that just kind of falls flat because we're in some ways a lot more accepting of people of the LGBTQ plus community, but back then we weren't right. So that further complicates this whole thing is because not only were we trying to figure out, well, how is this disease spreading and how is it, but we were also trying to kind trying to come to grips with accepting people of all different lifestyles, right? Right. And learning to be accepting, and in our our lack of acceptance prevented us from handling this disease, right? And among all the other things. So I mean, that's and I think the movie does a good job of painting a painting that very complex picture. So yeah, it's yeah. very thought provoking, but yeah, that's, that, that's what adds that layer of difficulty in watching this. And in some ways you watch it and think, oh my gosh, like I remember people talking that way. I remember people feeling that way and, you know, using words that are really not accepted now. And then you think, okay, well, my gosh, we have definitely come a long way, right. As a society. Yeah. But then when you hear just the little side stories, like the one and she's been in a lot of Aaron Sorkin stuff. She was in the West Wing. I, I forget the actress's name, but when she was called to testify and she was testified that she was told to not wear this jewelry or not wear these clothes or, mm-hmm. you know, so on and so forth because it looked too ethnic. I mean, something like that could be done today. So now it's, and do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when that was out there, and obviously it was in, she was testifying against another party. So it was a, a little bit more of a confrontational nature, but just to see like, Hey, this is how I feel. And people are telling me to not wear these earrings or not wear these, not wear my hair this way or not wear these clothes. Oh, I'm repeating myself, these clothes. And you know, that's, that's pretty, unex- you know, I, I, I don't like that. That's pretty unaccepting. That's not, that's not right. That's stereotyping and so forth just seeing the other side of that, just be so dismissive, just laugh it off. Like, are you kidding me? Come on. That's not a big deal. We told you to, you know, just us telling you not to wear those earrings or not. That's, that's no big deal at all. Come on, just like deal with it. Kind of the attitude that was there. I can see that happening today. That still happens today. 
right? You know, so that's kind of the what this movie I think really helps bring out. Like any of these, is you see, wow, thirty years ago we've come a long way, and then it's like, wow, thirty years ago we're nowhere. Yeah. You know, and, and and that's kind of we're feeling that all at once. Yeah, or seeing that all at once. So. All right. Well, I think it's time for three questions. He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. It's impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response, were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. All right, three questions. Question number one, what is something you've changed your mind about the more you've learned? The more you know. Da-da-da-da. I mean, I guess I'm going to stay in, in in the theme of what this film and what this movie, because I think that was a process. You know, again, growing up, Catholic school, not being in contact with anybody who is gay. You know, you have your church beliefs of, of, of whether something's moral or immoral. You have your own personal, if you feel it's something that you just can't understand, which is typically where I kind of came from. It wasn't so much on the moral, immoral thing, but it was more like, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. So it was, it was just not quote unquote normal for me. And I got, you know, things like the movies obviously put put little seeds in your head. And then basically when you actually meet somebody when I was working for somebody who had turned out to be a really great guy and a good friend and stuff and and my first, I guess, mentor teacher. And I think the big thing was I went through a philosophy class in a Lutheran school when I was in college and they debated some pretty hard topics. You know, we, we went into things like abortion, all the ones you say that people say not to do. And then it became on the uh, the morality or whatever, whether or not being gay was. And you had like a small class. I think there was about eight of us in there. And I, I heard a lot of very religious Lutheran people kind of try to make a case for homosexuality being immoral and wrong or not normal. You know, and, and the, the guy who did it did a really nice job of not leading people into necessarily one direction or the other. But discovering things yourself. And I remember sitting there listening to these arguments and I was trying to come from a scientific sort of like the parts don't fit all, you know, like all these like type of things. And I remember these, these beliefs that you had. And, and in the end, it was just something that the more I learned and listened to people and, and actually listened to other people trying to attack something that it made me think like, you really don't have it. That doesn't make sense either. That doesn't. And again, I can see how you might believe what I, I think listening to other people, it just changed my view on what normal is and how I'm not a judge of what's normal for somebody else. As long as it's consenting adults, it's really probably none of my business as long as no one's getting hurt and that type of thing. And, and I think it just, it literally changed the way I viewed that where I was no longer kind of the fear or like, Denzel Washington in that store, the way he reacted is how I probably would have reacted had somebody tried to hit on me. You know, I would have been like, oh, don't you dare. How dare you even think that, you know, and, and it just made it more comfortable. No, thank you. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm straight, you know, but 
it was one of those things where it just made you a little bit less insecure, I guess, if people were probably insecure out of fear or the unknown. So the more I learned about it through that conversation, through various films, I would say that's an issue that, that I definitely changed on. Yeah. And again, may not, I, I don't completely understand it all, but at the same time, it's one of those things of live and let live. And yeah. And so I was staying on the lighthearted topic train that we've been going on here. I will say that probably up until college, yeah, maybe around college, maybe a little bit after, one thing that I've kind of changed my mind on is when I was in when I was younger and was in high school and the kind of the first part of college, something that I was pretty adamant about, yep, we we got to have it. It it needs to exist. It's 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 the right way to handle things was the death penalty. And as I kind of did some more reading and just trying to understand more about it, I have, and and even though I think, I I don't want to speak for, I don't want to be the spokesperson for people that have the same religious beliefs that I do, but I I tend to think that I think some of the, some of those circles, people tend to lean more towards the, yes, we have to have the death penalty because there's terrible people and and those terrible people have to be, they have to receive the the just punishment and, and all of those things. And, and sure. I mean, I can see where that's, that's a, that's a valid viewpoint to have, but the more I understand it, I'm like, well, but I'm also called to care for human life. And, and that is all human life in whatever way it exists and to try to promote, forgiveness and redemption and if you end somebody's life then how can they be redeemed and you know if you can redeem if the the worst possible person can be redeemed as as i understand it then that doesn't discount anybody who's on death row from being redeemed you know there's all the disparities with race and economics and you know the the justice system is not perfect and so you have a system that you know there are people that are executed that I'm, I'm sure there have been countless people who have been executed that probably shouldn't have been because of mistakes in the justice system. And the other one, one of the ones I had, had read a little bit more recently was kind of the cost that if you just want to talk about financials, that the death penalty is sometimes more expensive than like life without parole type sentences because of the legal process with appeals and, and everything else. And, Kind of how extensive and expensive that gets to be, so yeah, that's just something. As I've done more reading on it, just with my own belief and, and faith, that I've kind of come to the other side of it. Of are there instances in which the death penalty may be the correct decision? Possibly. I, I'm thankful I'm not a judge and that I don't have to decide those things. But for me personally, I'm. If somebody asks my opinion on it, I I have reached a point where I'm going to say. I am not in support of it. I, I think there are other ways. Take take the money that's spent on things like that and use it towards creating programs to try to help prevent the type of issues that get you to the death penalty in the first place. All right, so that's that's me. That's where I've done some. No, that's a good one. That's that was actually my one of my other thought topics of of things that I, I said that I changed. But I think I. Yeah. I felt like I changed rather quickly. I don't know if it was a necessary. You know, I guess there's got to be a process of what I slowly learned over time. But I remember the big question was, could you pull the switch? Yeah, I know. And if I couldn't pull the switch, 
with a hundred percent certainty that even if it was like, can I pull the, pull the switch and take another person's life in a calm, conscious manner, you know, and, and I've said, if somebody was directly threatening my children's life or my loved one's life, yeah. I could see myself snapping and possibly killing somebody there. Yeah. But once I have calmed down, once someone is caught, once someone is stopped and they are no longer a threat, now you have them and they go through a court process and they've been found guilty. Things are so cooled down. I guess what I would say, I, I probably did learn more in that. That helped too, is I also learned a response from the, I, I saw a video or a couple of videos or movies and documentaries and stuff, interviews of people who had loved ones who were either victims of violent crime, who the person was then put on death penalty, you know, uh, on death row. And in the end, the people didn't feel any better when it happened. Yeah. And sometimes they felt worse. And it was those things that if it doesn't bring your loved one back, what does a civil society do? What is a higher level spirit, if you want to call it? What is your responsibility? And it's, you put those people away and you can keep them away from everyone else. So they don't do harm. But that doesn't mean you have to kill them. People are like, well, you got to pay for that. Well, that's the cost of being a, sometimes a higher right. civil uh, of a higher civil conscience. You know, right. yeah. Sometimes you have to take care of the sick and the ill, and these are people who are obviously sick and ill um, that they could take another human's life violently. So we need to be the bigger person, and we need to just keep them locked up, keep them away from other people, allow that redemption, turn the other cheek. Thou shall not kill. Doesn't say thou shalt not kill unless, you know, the guy. And then again, all those cases of people who did get away with it. What was the movie with movie with Susan Sarandon and, and Sean Penn? Dead Man Walking. Yeah, Dead Man Walking. That was it. Yeah, like even that, just thought provoking of some of that stuff. And you know, he did in the end. He did. It's just, yeah. I, I always say, can I pull the trigger? Can I do? Can I inject the fluid? Can I yeah. flip the switch? And if I can't do those, I can't ask somebody else to do that for me. Right. So. Yeah, it's a good, good other topic. Patrick, what about yours? Boy, guys, I, I don't know. I don't know if I got anything. I, I was I was trying to think of something like, you know, I wasn't too sure, you know, about Cub fans. But now actually hanging out with some of the people on the podcast. or I, Then I was like, no, I can't do that because I'm not. Then I was going to say, I wasn't too sure about Sox fans. But, you know, Dennis brings up some good. So maybe I, I was trying to come up with something lighthearted. And then I was just like, really, here's my thing. I was never too sure about on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But then when I finally sat down and saw it, I had a buddy tell me, that's one of the greatest Bond films ever, right? And then I was going to say that. And, and then I was just like, okay, man, we've had all these like serious topics. So maybe comic relief isn't the best choice, you know? <laughs> and then, and then and now here's the problem. Now here's, here's my conundrum. Here's my conundrum. Because then what, what happens if I'm saying, ah, oh, I've never really changed my mind? Then everyone listening is going to be like, man, he's just some stubborn SOB that really doesn't. Or it's just virtue signaling. Oh, he's open to everything. So he, you know what I'm saying? So I, I'm stuck. I don't know what to say. I, but I, I, I hear you. Oh, hold on. Hold uh, on just a second, Pat. Let me, let me, let me chime in for you there. I <laughs> just rejected your question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, boy, I'm just listening to you guys talking. I, I think that death penalty one is a, is a good one, but I, I don't know if there, it's hard because there was never a, well, I, here's where I changed. It's because you're constantly thinking this thing through, right? You're constantly analyzing it and thinking about it. And you go back far enough, you're a kid when you can live in the, the absolute, you don't have to deal with that. Thankfully I didn't as a kid have to deal with those 
types of things. So when you're a kid, okay. a lot of your beliefs and a lot of what you assume you believe in, you don't really necessarily believe in a lot of it's inherited beliefs from parents. Yeah. Inherited or you just don't have a full, so you just kind of go along with it. And then by yeah, eventually or, you get to the age you start to think. Or, or, or it's just a, or, or it's just that you don't have a real, well, and now my God, there's some kids living around the world that have had too much life experience at a young age. But yeah. for me, it's like, I haven't really had much life experience and I'm going to sit here and wind off on this stuff. Like I know what I'm talking about. And so it's hard because then you hear like, okay, well, did I really have my mind made up then? It's a continue. I don't remember ever switching or changing or being accepting or judging or any of those things. So that's, that's what makes it hard. But I think what you're saying, I think any of these big topics, any of these big topics right now, that we're that we're talking about i think you kind of have to constantly be evolving and thinking and questioning and i I think that's just inherently a good way to make sure that you're moving forward as an individual and as a society you've got to constantly be questioning and challenging and 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 testing your beliefs and i think too especially now when we've just we're well we're still living through this just fractious time when no one would ever want to compromise their thoughts to try and get the other person on board. Like that's just, that's just considered awful. Like, Oh, well, why would you ever compromise with that person or compromise with that? How could you, that's not your site. You know, it's an us versus them mindset. And boy, at some point we just have to realize that we got to find the way we got to find the way forward together. And the way forward together is finding a way to compromise you know what I'm saying? I think just um, listening yeah. to other people is, is huge in the sense that I think that's one of the things that seems to scare me a little bit about people on their ideas, whether it's some of these big ticket items like these, you know, the ones that they always say you're not supposed to talk about and stuff. But I'm like, I think people get so pigeonholed into their own belief and that they're 100% right that they never consider the other argument. And so I think, and, and automatically they label people, and I think that's happening. And you know, I know people have said it's happened a lot more on college campuses where people are getting shouted right. down, they're being called fascists and Nazis, they're being run, not being able to speak. There's no dialogue, there's no questions being asked. It's not a battle of ideas or a battle of words in terms of like ideas, words. It's, it's just labels and locking in and refusing to hear another side. Where well, I. Would well, like right, to say I, that I go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and, and I think, and, and, and I mean, going back to the, the question is what, what is something that come that you've learned and changed? I think just because of that, I'm, I'm trying to kind of like be the counter to that and just, like you said, just try to, to listen. What are my beliefs? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. I don't have a set thing that I can. Give you this is one of the three questions i know we're supposed to do quick answers john i apologize well, and, and, I, I, and i wanted to share with you pat like there is there's something else that i've changed my mind on the more i've learned about uh-oh. is point uh-oh. break yeah okay so the john the, the end the end of point break i i wanted to share this mm-hmm. with you here and now that okay. the more i've learned the more right. i've and, and and i've gone back and i've watched the end of point break again and mm-hmm. I would like to announce it here and now on the podcast that mm-hmm. the more I have learned and considered the end of Point Break, I think I really hate that movie now. <laughs> Not just okay. I, I don't. I don't just. Going. It just doesn't make me angry anymore, and I just don't dislike it. I think I really hate that movie. Nope. I've, right. and I've, I've accepted and it's, compromised. It's the line, 
It's the line in Tombstone. Nope. I'm sure. I hate it. Dogs are allowed to have baths. Because, because you know what? Because that's where that's where the that's where the death penalty would be acceptable is kill Bodie right there. Don't let him don't let him go on that final ride. Just put a gun to his head and end it because it's not right. Okay. All right. That's- I, I hate that movie. Oh I hate point break. Let it let it be known for all time. I hate point break. Okay. All right. So anybody who loves point break, oh, we've got patreon.com slash 30 podcast oh, is going to be a great place to go. Oh, um, man. Also, if you love home alone, you can, you can head over there as well. Yeah. You can head over to all that stuff. All that stuff. All I, right. Um, so question, no, I, 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 question two. Question I was number two. Say, all right. If you were attending a costume party, what are you going to wear? Oh, this is the question that gets everybody quiet. Yeah, do you have a uh, Dennis rejects that question? <laughs> Dennis just rejects, yeah. But Dennis, um, you have one of the most consistent, you have one of the most consistent Halloween costumes that I, I of anyone I've known. What is it? You you always go as the boxer. Yeah, I have done that, but it's, you know. Oh, I thought you were going to say he looks like Lurch. Lurch, yeah, there you go. Man. All right, one day I'm going to go back to the childhood one that tormented me. I have a picture where I looked really unhappy. And one day I feel like I, I went as my mom had me go as a checkerboard man. Oh, okay. Literally had a checkerboard on the front, a checkerboard on the back, like over me. Uh-huh. And I had a black mask on. I have no idea what the hell that was about. We asked her, <laughs> what were you thinking? My brother went as the saddest looking Mickey Mouse. Uh-huh. <laughs> and my brothers made paper mache helmets out of Big Big Bird. Or no, uh, Ernie and Bert. Okay. That if I had today, I would probably incorporate them into a horror movie. Okay. You know, like the way masks work with certain characters yeah. and stuff. And it's like yeah. they are disturbing. It was disturbing. It was like a melted Ernie and Bert head. And in that picture, I'm sitting there with a black mask. And so I think maybe one day I want to reprise the role of the checkerboard man. I don't know what his superpowers are. I can king people. I don't know. Sure. I don't, I don't, I'm like, mom, what were you thinking? She's like, well, five boys. I had how many time for costumes or paper macheing? I had nothing for you. (laughs) Paper, so you became a checkerboard man. So. Fair enough. Maybe I'll share that on the on our. I'll share that picture. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how weird this looks. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. pretty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Patrick. What about you? What do you? What do you? Yeah, I should have been calling at that point. Yeah, I'd have to go with something like low key, something comfortable, right? I'd have to find some kind of. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, but something comfortable, something easy. Just I. I don't want a costume that's going to be uncomfortable. A lot of like makeup and face paint, or that was going to be actually, kind of stuff. what you just said was going to be one of my like if I wanted to go to the comic book convention and wear a costume, but have it be like not super complicated. It was going to be a mm-hmm. green shirt and some golden horns, and a, like a green t shirt, yeah. some golden horns, and I was going to be low key Loki. Yeah, yeah, that would I say all that, and I want low key, you know, but honestly, I'd probably like just go as a Mandalorian. Ah, there you go, you know, mm-hmm. cool helmet and. I think I think that'd be I think that'd work. I my favorite costume that I have is the Rocketeer. It's not the most comfortable, yeah. but it is my favorite one. If I was going comfort, I would go Jedi. Mm-hmm. The Jedi Jedi mm-hmm. robes are remarkably comfortable. Yeah. 
No. All right, question number three. Who is your favorite movie attorney? I'd like to go the English teacher answer and say Atticus Finch. I know. Everybody's going to say it. So I, I, can I, we just assume everybody's going to say Atticus Finch, and then let's go from the side. Your question should have been phrased, besides Atticus Finch. Okay. Uh, sorry, Atticus Finch. Who is your favorite attorney? All right. Can you we'll, phrase that? We'll do that. Yeah, besides Atticus Finch, who is our favorite movie attorney, I'm going to go Vincent Gambini. I knew that was going to be that. Yeah. Yeah, Vincent Gambini's good. Yeah. That is not mine. Vincent Gambini is good. Is that yours, Pat? That was going to be mine. That was going to be Vincent, oh, was Vincent Gambini. Okay. All right. I was looking through lists. They said Aaron Brockovich was an attorney, but was she an attorney? I mean, maybe now, she eventually got her law degree, but. I felt like she was more of like a, a legal aide or. Yeah. That was, that was my understanding, but, you know, my understanding could be wrong. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're open to learning that your understanding could be wrong. Yeah, and that's why I struggled with question number one. Right. You know. right. We've, we've talked about this tonight. So is that is that Pat's then too as well? or did, um... I, I, I think I'm going to say Vincent Gambini. I mean, because I, I, if Aaron Brockovich counts as a lawyer, I'd put her in there. All right, I am going to go stumpers, with that. Um... got some stumpers for us. I've got, I've got two, I've got two, and I'm going to go back to one, just kind of my first lawyer from my dad, like, it's going to be Colonel Drummond, played by Spencer Tracy in Inherit the Wind, okay. and then I'm going to go right. with a more modern one, which for some reason I love the closing argument from Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey's character, I think it's like Jake Briggins or something like that, yeah, in A Time to Kill. Okay. Yeah, nice. yeah. Close your eyes. And pretend, and he goes through the whole thing now, pretend that she's what, that, like, that, I think it was just a great, great role. So I saw that in the theater, so it had maybe a bigger impact. But yeah. Colonel Drummond from Inherit the Wind, which was about the Scopes Monkey Trial, played by Spencer Tracy. And then I'm going to go more modern time to kill. Nice. Excellent choices. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, gents, for, as always, I love, love talking movies with you. And this one, while not one of our, Funnier, more comedic ones. Definitely a yeah. really important topic. And, you know, I think if you have not seen the movie Philadelphia, you definitely need to go check this one out. You know, I, I would say if you want to check out other movies that maybe cover similar topics, I'd say, you know, the the movie version of Rent, the musical, deals with similar topics. Dallas Buyers Club deals with similar topics. So there are several other movies out there that are on kind of a, in a similar vein. So you may want to go check those out as well. Check out our, our I did website. Track down, I, did, I did track down the Image Union video. It was a music video that I saw. And it was oh, by okay. a band called Coil. Oh, okay. So I put in the link there for you guys if you want to look at it. But it's, uh, it's okay. definitely a down. It's a, it's a heavy, heavy video. But this is 1985. So we talked about things not being done too often. This is 19, This is pretty early. It's four years into the, into the, the AIDS epidemic. But okay. a band redid... Painted Love by Soft Cell, and I think Gloria something was the other lady. And, and these two guys, they did a um, they did a video, and the video is very. It was it was again seeing that as a kid again, probably thirteen fourteen years old at the time. I remember watching it, and it was it was it was disturbing for me. Yeah. When I say disturbing, just like it just was heavy, heavy. I guess is the word. But the band is core. The the, the it's on YouTube. Coil. Okay. 
All right, I'm gonna I'll take that link and I'll drop it in our show notes so people can check it out there too. So this month we've ended this month. This is the last episode of our location, location, location month. So Philadelphia was the last one. We are going right on into May with our action movies month. We're gonna have In the Line of Fire, Demolition Man, Loaded Weapon One, Striking Distance, and the Three Musketeers. And then if you're checking us out over on Patreon, if you're joining us over there as a co-executive producer, any amount of support over there gets you access to the bonus episodes. We do one full length episode and two short episodes a month. Those are like 15 minute kind of deals. And our full length episode for May is American Graffiti from 1973. And then our two Patreon shorts are our local hero from 83 and the hunger from 83 because there's nothing quite like a David Bowie vampire movie. Always fun stuff. So, so that is it for this time. Gents, thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you, John. Glad to be here. Good seeing you, Dennis. Yep. All right, everybody be excellent to each other. Go watch some good movies and we will see you back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>